I want to welcome again our guest, Dr. Alice Mao from Baylor uh, in Texas and Dr. Scott Collins from uh, Duke University Medical Center in Durham, North Carolina. We're in our special segment called After the Show, and this is where we, uh, uh, we play a little uh, game. I'm going to give you some tough questions, and you're going you're gonna to help our <laughs> clinicians get through uh, the next 30 minutes. So uh, these, are, these are absolutely sensational questions. Uh, every one of them are things that I think we face in practice every single day. Very, very representative. I'm, I'm really pleased. Um, Scott, let me, let me start with you. We have a uh, question from Drew Earhart who asks, how do you best respond to clinicians, or parents for that matter, who interpret the MTA study to mean Monotherapy is the way to approach ADHD with pharmacotherapy alone. Right. Well, I think, you know, the, the answer to that, and, and I actually routinely talk to parents about this, is that medication works really well mm-hmm. for treating ADHD symptoms. ADHD symptoms in isolation aren't the things that, that bring our patients into the office. And, in mm-hmm. fact, secondary analyses from the MTA support the notion that a combination of medication along with uh, intensive behavioral therapy mm-hmm. is really going to be most effective for managing the related impairments that go along with that, including one of the things that's interesting and, and you know, pertinent to addressing a parental concern is that parental satisfaction was one of the outcome measures that was significantly greater in the groups in the MTA that received the behavioral treatments. Um, so parents liked it better. Um, if parents like it better, it, it, it might have an impact on the adherence and compliance that we talked about earlier. So I think that for ADHD symptoms alone, sure, medication by itself is going to do really well. For all the related impairments, though, in, in the sort of collateral damage that goes along with ADHD symptoms, a combination approach is going to be best. Alice, let me throw this one to you. This is a great question from Dr. Gail Schumann, a pediatric neurologist at Stony Brook. And she writes in and says, um, question, uh, absence epilepsy, can that be misinterpreted as ADHD? And in addition, we hear a lot about sensory integration dysfunction uh, as perhaps a part of the differential. Can you say a few words about that? Well, I, I think that certainly there have been cases where a child had absence seizures, looked inattentive because they were staring off in space, and parents were concerned that it was ADHD when the reality was there might be an undiagnosed seizure disorder. So mm-hmm. definitely that is one of those medical conditions that definitely needs to be screened for as we do a workup. But in terms of looking at a diagnosis of ADHD, as we had talked about earlier, this is not going to occur in a void, and there's going to be cross-situational impairment. Generally, the problem occurs throughout the day and not Mm -hmm. only in isolated periods of just a few minutes. Um, There have been a few studies looking at sensory integration techniques for these kids with ADHD with um, varying degrees of success, but I don't think that there is a control trial that really demonstrates that they are useful yet. I, I'm not sure, though. Scott, have you heard of anything in terms of those types of No, and I think, that, I, mean, I think that the challenge is, um, at least from my perspective and my understanding of um, the literature or, or lack thereof, is that the, the sensory integration problems or, or approaches to treatment are not terribly well defined. Mm-hmm. So I, I, you know, that, that means different things to different people. Sure. And so I think until there's a little bit more clarity as to what that means, that, that we can't really you know, use it to make recommendations about I, treatment. I agree. 
Scott, here's one for you. Um, have you found that, be, and I, I actually uh, face this uh, question a lot in my practice, have you found that behavioral therapy is effective in the setting of tics, anxiety, and ADHD? Uh, Yes, in, in the context of that comorbidity. And yeah. it depends on, it depend, I mean, you can ask the question in different ways. Is behavior therapy for treating tics and anxiety effective in a kid who's also got comorbid ADHD? Mm-hmm. Or is it effective for treating ADHD in a kid that's comorbid? And I think the yeah. answer actually to both of those is yes. The, yeah. the, the, um, the literature supporting that uh, differs. For example, in the MTA study, um, there is, uh, uh, th- there's evidence that kids who had ADHD and comorbid anxiety disorders who got both medication and behavioral treatment, their ADHD actually did better mm-hmm. than, uh, than kids who had ADHD alone. Um, so, so there's some evidence that, that behavioral therapy, at least in combination with medication, is going to be effective in, for treating ADHD in the context of those other disorders. Um, certainly, um, behavior therapy is one of the frontline treatments for anxiety and for tics. Um, and to the extent that you, know, you can also have at least some management of ADHD symptoms, I can't imagine a reason why it wouldn't continue to be effective for anxiety and tics in the context of ADHD. The reason why I think it's such a great question is that triad uh, it really strikes home for me in, in my practice, tics, ADHD, and anxiety. And oftentimes, if the parent will come in, uh, they will describe ADHD and anxiety. I'll ask about tics. Or a parent mm-hmm. will come in and describe ADHD and tics. I'll ask about anxiety. Mm-hmm. Because that triad is so common. Well, I think it, you know, I, it underscores also the importance of relying on a multimodal approach to treatment. Yeah. Because if, you're, if, you, if you don't do that in a case like that, you're, you're really going to miss the boat. Yeah. Yeah. Here's one for you, Alice. Do non-stimulants have a cleaner side effect profile? That is to say, no issues with growth, retardation, no issue with cardiotoxicity as compared to stimulants. Well, I think that it would be hard to say that they have a cleaner side effect profile, that they may have different side effects. I mean, certainly in terms of misuse and diversion, these Mm -hmm. non-stimulant medications are diverted less. I I think you still have to monitor for heart rate as well as blood pressure. You you still need to check liver functions for the atomoxetine because there have been very few cases of reported hepatotoxicity. And you you do need to monitor for sedation because these medications are very calming. So so there are different side effects. I, I, I can't say they actually have a less burden of side effects, but but some of these things that occur, are, are, they are perhaps a little bit less in terms of the appetite suppression. Scott, here's a great question for you, and I, I uh, shudder to think what you're going to say because I think I know the answer, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Um, does the impact of growth deceleration diminish when treatment is finished? That's a, that's a complicated question. Yes, um, I was afraid of that. You know, data, recent data from, uh, fr- from the MTA study, from the, from the eight-year follow-up, suggests that there is an association between overall level of exposure and the extent of growth deceleration. Um, but again, whether or not they're, they're, the, the deceleration stops and there's a, there's a catch-up, that's still somewhat controversial in the literature. The, most of the data, and, and you know, if I were pinned to the wall and had to give an answer, I would say that most of the data suggests that as you, if you discontinue treatment, mm-hmm. um, while the child is still in a, in a you know, stage where they're still growing, mm-hmm. that they would um, potentially, you know, the, the, de- the, the growth would accelerate. 
Right. Um, but again, you know, it's murky. There, there's a lot of um, complexities to being able to analyze data uh, longitudinally to look at growth. Um, so I, I think that the conservative approach to thinking about growth is that to, to just simply accept that it, it does have an impact on growth. Mm-hmm. There's some still unremained questions about whether or not, you know, if we stop it, is it going to catch back up? Does mm-hmm. it impact terminal height? Mm-hmm. Um, but, but to keep that in mind when we're making decisions about treatment. And I would, and I would say you, clinically in practice, you know, for 18 years I've been writing stimulant medications yeah. And, you know, I will say my clinical experience when we've stopped the medications, sometimes there appears to be um, reinstatement of their normal growth trajectory. And um, that, that's my clinical well, experience. But certainly, certainly we're familiar with the fact mm-hmm. that when uh, a child experiences some appetite suppression and perhaps some mm-hmm. fall off in terms mm-hmm. of weight, the minute we stop stimulants, that weight comes back. Yes. Mm-hmm. I think the other point, and, and please mm-hmm. jump in and help mm-hmm. me if I'm, if I'm misinterpreting this, but I think the growth deceleration uh, concern came directly out of the papers that were published uh, regarding the PATS, the preschool ADHD treatment mm-hmm. study, mm-hmm. and that was only a, a very small group of kids, well, mm-hmm. large group of kids for the study, but three to five years old, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. of course it was a limited exposure. Mm-hmm. The other mm-hmm. source of concern mm-hmm. was uh, the MTA study, mm-hmm. and again, small uh, mm-hmm. window, seven to nine years old, mm-hmm. albeit the study was for 14 months. Mm-hmm. So I guess to make projections about what these kids will be doing in adolescence mm-hmm. or in mm-hmm. adulthood is a dicey situation. It is. Very uh, difficult. You know, again, yeah. you know, the, the, the PAT study, which was looking at kids at a younger age, found um, you know, greater impact mm-hmm. on growth you mm-hmm. know, relative mm-hmm. to, to their mm-hmm. growth curves mm-hmm. than the MTA study. So you know, mm-hmm. suggesting that maybe the effect is even stronger in younger kids. Now, yeah. we're still following mm-hmm. those kids, so mm-hmm. we need to see where they're going to be at, and, and mm-hmm. you know, those data mm-hmm. will be coming out hopefully in the next mm-hmm. you know, couple of years to sure. continue to inform mm-hmm. the discussion. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, Alice, great question for you. Mm-hmm. Can one start a child on stimulant medication for ADHD if there's a family history of bipolar disorder? The hidden question here is, is there a risk of provoking mania or aggressive episodes with stimulant? Go. I, I think that's a very serious consideration. At, at the same time, you know, not all kids of parents who have bipolar disorder do develop bipolar disorder. So I think what's important is to take a careful history, look for symptoms such as, you know, is there a strong family history of bipolar disorder? If they have over three affected family members, that indicates a higher risk. If the child already has mood instability, grandiosity, problems with terrible temper, outbursts, as well as rapid cycling that occurs several times a day, then that probably would not be the kid that I would start stimulants on. You know, I would probably treat the mood disorder first. If it's really not clear and there's just a family history as your only indicator without any clinical symptoms, it probably is safer to go ahead and start the treatment for the ADHD because overall these treatments for ADHD seem to have a little bit less side effect burden than the current FDA-approved treatments for bipolar disorder in children. Thanks. We have a lot of questions coming in regarding, mm-hmm. again, sort of a review of mm-hmm. uh, the um, psychopharmacology approach. And uh, let me try a little bit here and mm-hmm. see if I can address some of this, and then we'll go back to the sure. questions. Sure. I think the things that I like to talk about with parents in terms of uh, the various preparations out there is this. Look, 
an, uh, an immediate release tablet in general, whether it's amphetamine or whether it's mm -hmm. methylphenidate, mm -hmm. goes to work in 20 to 30 minutes. It mm -hmm. lasts about two to three hours, maybe four mm -hmm. hours top end, sure. and then it disappears. The double pulse beaded, Mm -hmm. Roughly twice that. Mm -hmm. I usually tell them four to six hours, maybe eight hours if they're lucky. The uh, Oros uh, uh, piston-driven um, uh, uh, delivery system for methylphenidate, certainly longer. Uh, the uh, Lys uh, amphetamine product, certainly longer. Uh, and the transdermal system has to be worn about nine hours, so certainly longer again. Uh, the liquid formulations are, again, going to be very much like the uh, immediate release products. Uh, again, they reach peak concentration in one hour or so, and they're gone in about three hours. So I think those are sort of general guidelines to keep in mind. Does yeah. that sound about right to you? I, I, yeah, and the dexmethylphenidate and the uh, mixed amphetamine salts, right. actually their immediate release formulations have five to six duration of right. action. And so what happens is generally the studies have shown that they actually do with separate from placebo at 12 hours post-dose, but uh -huh. both of those have FDA so, um, Significantly studies. longer. Right, and right. I think, I think the other thing that clinicians need to keep in mind is that, uh, you know, milligram for milligram, methylphenidate products are about half the potency right. of amphetamine products. So a 5 milligram amphetamine product is really equivalent to, roughly speaking, a 10 milligram methylphenidate. It's not perfect, but it's close. That's right. I think the other thing is uh, I always talk to uh, clinicians and patients alike about the, the, the side effects to keep in mind. And I always say to them, look, you can count them on the fingers of five five fingers of one hand. And mm -hmm. what you say is, by far, appetite suppression is your first and most uh, concerning side effect. Secondly, insomnia. Mm -hmm. These kids have real trouble going to sleep at night. Mm -hmm. Third, headaches and stomach aches. Fourth, changes in mood, whether mm -hmm. it's irritability, whether it's crankiness and crying spells, whether mm -hmm. it's paranoia. Mm -hmm. And finally, ticks or other sort of strange uh, behaviors, uh, biting their fingernails. I had a child who was biting her toenails. Don't ask me how she did that. But uh, I think if you keep those in mind, you'll cover the waterfront. Yes, there are even more rare side effects, but I think those top five are the ones that clinicians ought to keep in mind. Certainly. that sound fair? Yeah, yeah. And it's very rare, but occasionally there might be a kid who may have tactile hallucinations or yes. visual hallucinations. You know, I've, I've had um, kids who reported that they saw insects crawling and they disappeared when the medications were discontinued. Absolutely. But, but certainly if there's any misuse of medications and people are taking more than what they're actually prescribed, you increase the risks of the mood instability, mood elevation, and possibly the psychotic symptoms. I think that's a superb uh, addition. Uh, and as, as you know, uh, all of us in the field uh, received a broadcast email from the Food and Drug Administration a couple of years back indicating mm -hmm. that uh, even at uh, conventional doses, mm -hmm. uh, there is the possibility that uh, psychotic symptoms right. can occur with uh, mm -hmm. these stimulant drugs. It's not common, but they can occur. Absolutely. Let's go back to some of the questions that we're getting from our uh, viewers. Um, Scott, for you, what are the most effective behavioral strategies for children at the elementary school age level? The, uh, the, the, uh, the strategies that I went through, the behavioral parent management training, mm -hmm. behavioral classroom management, it, that applies across the age range. Preschool age, elementary school age, 
on into adolescence, although the evidence base at the, at the two ends of the age spectrum for preschoolers and for adolescents is, is more limited, uh, same strategies uh, are, are effective. I will say that the, you know, there, there's, there's good evidence, and if we look at effect sizes of different studies, these behavioral interventions seem to perform even better the younger the child is. And in fact, behavioral interventions for preschool age kids, you see effect sizes that are comparable to some of the, well, there's very few studies of medications in in the really young kids. Um, So you really get more mileage out of behavioral interventions for the younger kids. Alice, here's another question that comes up a lot. Here's, this is for you. Uh, Is there a role for any of the newer uh, anti-epileptics or anti-convulsants in the treatment of ADHD? There is no FDA approval for any of those treatments in the role of ADHD. I think that they are used in comorbid conditions if the child has significant oppositionality, defiance, mood swings. Some of those anti-epileptic medications have been utilized, but but again, there's no FDA approval for those treatments. Exactly. Uh, Another question for you, Alice. How would you identify and differently treat a child with lead exposure who also exhibits all the ADHD symptoms? I think that we have to look at it clinically in terms of if they do have lead exposure and they are demonstrating symptoms of ADHD, we need to do you know, whatever the pediatrician is recommending about lead, but it, there's a potential that they can respond to ADHD treatments, and if they're having significant impairment in school and as well as at home, they can respond to these medications also. But it's a, it's a great question and not enough studies on that issue. Scott, great question for you. Please comment on the relationship between ADHD treatment resistance and post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD. Wow. (laughs) Great question. It's a hard question. It's a hard question, yes. We don't don't ask easy questions. No, no. Well, first of all, I I think that the, um, uh, I'll try to break the question up into things that I know about. And and in terms of ADHD treatment resistance, Mm -hmm. um, Whenever I hear that, one of the first things I'm thinking about is, okay, did you get the diagnosis right? Exactly. Is this the right diagnosis? Exactly. in general, with careful titration and and careful monitoring, which we talked about, you can get good symptom reduction in the vast majority, and and, we're talking 90 to 95% of cases, you can get symptom reductions that would... Uh, that would not be considered treatment resistant. Now, certainly there are kids that, uh, that, that might not respond at all, and, and the, but they're very, very few and far between. So if I'm thinking treatment resistance, um, I'm wondering if the diagnosis is correct, which leads then to this question about possible comorbidity with PTSD. It's, po- it's certainly possible that some of the symptoms of PTSD in kids can mimic ADHD. Um, and so, you know, if I were presented with a case and there was a question of PTSD, and that they'd already been diagnosed with ADHD and not responded very well to a course of treatment, I would, I would take a very, very careful look at that ADHD vis-a-vis the, the history of trauma and, and figure out that maybe, you know, maybe everything that, that we're seeing with ADHD is better accounted for by, um, by some of the cognitive types of symptoms that we see with PTSD. Scott, uh, another question for you. Uh, a physician writes in and says that uh, he has a patient with ADHD and symptoms of ODD, but isn't going to meet full criteria for ODD. Mm-hmm. Is there a treatment option that might target the ODD symptoms? What sort of behavioral options might you recommend? Again, the, um, th- that's the beauty of the non-pharmacological uh, treatments that I talked about is that they are... Um, they're targeted more for specific behaviors rather than syndromes. So 
the ODD behaviors that, that you know, this clinician is running into can just as easily be the target of, of a daily report card or contingency management as an ADHD symptom, getting up out of their seat or talking out of turn. So um, you know, refusing to comply with requests or talking back or being spiteful and vindictive, et cetera, et cetera, as long as we define those behaviors well, they can easily be targeted. And in fact, the evidence is very, very strong that, um, that behavioral parent training is very effective for managing both sort of full-blown syndromatic ODD as well as symptoms, disruptive symptoms of ODD that we see so often hand-in-hand with ADHD. Um, another terrific question. I get this all the time. Uh, help me out here, Alice. Um, the viewer says, I've seen several children on dexmethylphenidate in the extended release uh, version who seem to be having just terrific school days. And then when they come home in the evening, they're combative and irritable. Are you seeing this? And what's, what's that all about? The dexmethylphenidate extended release is 50% immediate release. Four hours later, there's a delayed release speed that releases another um, bolus of medication. So mm-hmm. what happens is there is a pretty dramatic drop-off after eight hours. And so mm-hmm. what happens is by the time they get home in the afternoon, the medication levels are probably waning. And this could be either rebound symptoms or possibility problems in terms of just reemergence of the symptoms that are usually present. If that is the case, you you have a couple of options. One is to increase the dose of medications to see if you get more medication lasting throughout the day. The other option is to add an immediate release medication at the end of the day, like an immediate release dexmethylphenidate, in order to extend the effects of the medication, or alternatively to switch to a longer acting agent, such as the um, orosmethylphenidate or the Lysdex amphetamine, which tends to deliver less medication in the morning, but more so in the afternoon to cover that time period. So, so lot, lots of options for treatment to handle that situation. Scott, uh, here's one clearly for you. Have you found a group of children who meet ADHD criteria but who are not negatively impacted in productivity as seen on rating scales like the Vanderbilts and therefore don't need treatment? Um, no, because, you know, it's, I don't... But I, I'll, I'll pick the question apart on, on semantic. You can't meet the diagnostic criteria, um, you, you know, unless you are symptomatic and impaired. Um, I have seen, and in fact, we have a specialty clinic, and we see, you know, uh, the whole range of cases from very, very mild to very, very severe. And certainly, we've seen cases where there's a lot of symptoms, but no matter how hard you try. Um, there's really not enough impairment there to warrant a diagnosis and therefore to, to warrant treatment. Now, a lot of times you have parents coming in and, and the, the parents want their child to be uh, a straight A student instead of an AB student. Right. And you do your cognitive evaluation, you do your ADHD. Yeah, there's maybe some symptoms there, but the kid is happy as can be and is perfectly adjusted socially. And so that's a ma- that, that, you know, we, we might recommend... Uh, some parent education in that case, but mm-hmm. but you know again that that question can I think best be addressed by again keeping in very close in mind the DSM four criteria, and you know, you you can't have a case that's that's symptomatic that's not impaired. I, I think it also goes to the slide we had in the show about goals, setting goals, reasonable goals, mm-hmm. and setting expectations at a reasonable level. It's a perfect perfect uh, answer. Um, here's here's one for you, Alice. 
drug-drug interactions with the FDA-approved medications. Let's start with the stimulants and then move to atomoxetine and then move to guanfacine XR. See if you can do that uh, as quickly as you possibly can. In terms of mm-hmm. concerns, uh, concerns about drug-drug interactions, for example, well, uh, the yeah. most common thing would be common cold preparations that kids may take during flu season, for example. What do we need to worry about? Well, I mean, certainly if you're taking a medication that has pseudoephedrine in Mm -hmm. them, then if you're taking that in combination with a stimulant, you might be concerned about increased heart rate as well as possible increases in blood pressure. Mm -hmm. With the medications like atomoxetine, Mm -hmm. um, if you combine them with antidepressants that um, inhibit 2D6 enzymes like paroxetine or fluoxetine, you can elevate the levels of the atomoxetine, and thereby you may see increases in potential side effects with those. But generally, the stimulants are fairly safe to use in combination with other medications like SSRIs. The only other medication you might want to be concerned about if you're treating a depression with bupropion and then Mm -hmm. you add a stimulant to that, then um, again, you have to watch out for increased heart rate as well as blood pressure increase. If the patient has been on a monoamine oxidase inhibitor at any time, you have to wait two weeks before initiation of the stimulants because of concerns about hypertension. I've got um, a question for both of you, uh, and this hits home. Um, What approach do you take towards children with autism and ADHD symptoms? It hits home because I co-manage the Duke Autism Clinic, and I see so many children who come in with autistic spectrum disorders and also ADHD-like symptoms. What's the approach pharmacologically, behaviorally? Scott, Alice... Well, it's interesting because if you have autism, you actually cannot diagnose ADHD along with that. Mm-hmm. So, technically. So, so, yeah, technically. So, but many of these kids do demonstrate all of the symptoms that um, would fulfill criteria for ADHD. Unfortunately, the studies really show that these kids respond less effectively to the stimulant medications than normally developing children. And so we always have to caution the families that when we are targeting this particular symptom as part of an overall treatment spectrum that we may not see the sort of dramatic results that we see with the stimulants. And many of these kids may be on other types of medications um, such as risperidone in order to help with aberrant self-injurious behaviors or stereotypical behaviors. So we have to look at those combinations. Alice, Scott, I can't thank you enough for a wonderful job and we want to thank all of our viewers and remind them to go to www.neuroscience.com for more Uh, information and links to all of the resources we mentioned on the show. Thank you for joining us.